our series is cross-reference, and uh, this series is a practical one. We've been doing this this summer, and because we believe there's great value in understanding the Bible as you read. Our goal is not for you to come here to this building a couple or three times a week and hear somebody explain the word to you and that be your total connection with the Bible. Our goal is that we can somehow teach you how to understand the Bible and maybe fan a little bit of a flame that you'll want to dig into the word of the Lord for yourself. And as you do, you'll see what I like to call cross-references, that so many parts of the scripture, although they may not have anything immediately to do with Jesus dying on the cross, they point to it or they point back to it or they allude to it or they give us a story about it or a picture of it. They are cross-references. And so God's word is written with the end in mind. It's anointed and prophetic and the cross is the center of it all. So in this series, we've been following a little bit of an outline. We've divided the word of the Lord uh, up into sections so we could understand it. And I won't take time. Uh, it, it'll be online as long as the internet's there and, and you can go back and watch any of these parts again. But uh, we started into the New Testament last week and we talked about the four gospels. And tonight, uh, we want to proceed a little bit further. Uh, the New Testament was written over a period of about 40 years in the first century. Uh, Jesus' crucifixion and the birthday of the church, uh, what we call the day of Pentecost, that happened around A.D. 30. But nothing was written down for about 20 years until there was a church council in Jerusalem. That's Acts chapter 15. Uh, and, and around that time, the book of James was written and the book of Galatians was written to kind of uh, bring the issues of that conference together. Uh, and then later, Paul, as he journeyed on his missionary journeys, he wrote letters to churches in the 50s of the first century, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, Romans. He wrote more letters after he was imprisoned uh, for preaching the gospel. He wrote Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon uh, during his prison term. Uh, he wrote some personal letters to Titus, uh, also the first epistle he wrote to Timothy in the early 60s. That led up to his second imprisonment. Three of the Gospels were written during that decade, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, the book of Acts was written during that decade, the 60s of the first century. First and second Peter were written. Paul's final letter to Timothy, second Timothy in your Bible, his very last letter that he would ever write, is written from prison in Rome, not long before his execution, which we think was around A.D. 64. The Apostle Peter died that same year. Many other Christians were put to death in that decade of the 60s. The book of Hebrews, the book of Jude were written during that decade, just before the destruction of the Jewish temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. That's kind of the layout of the first century. For the next 20 years, the only surviving apostle was John. And he didn't pick up his pen during that 20 years until the early 90s of the first century. And he wrote five books, the Gospel of John, three epistles, and the book of Revelation. We'll talk about that book as we conclude this series next week. And so tonight, uh, we're going to proceed on. Last week, we talked about Christ, the Gospels. Uh, we, we talked about uh, Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus, and he wrote his Gospel to the Jews. We talked about Mark, who was the youngest of the writers, and he was a companion of Peter. That's where he got a lot of his information. He wrote his Gospel to the Romans. We talked about Luke, who was a companion of Paul, and he often traveled with him, and he wrote his Gospel to the Greeks. 
And finally, we talked about John. He was also, like Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, and he outlived everybody else in the apostles of his generation, and he wrote his gospel to the church more than 60 years after the day of Pentecost. The only original apostle left for 30-some years. Everyone else had been martyred, slain, uh, and he was the only one left. So his gospel is very powerful. We talked about that last week. Tonight we want to talk about the church. That's a great subject for tonight. Everyone say the church. And the church uh, in the New Testament, the history of the church is contained in one book, the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is God's blueprint for building an apostolic church. So the book of Acts is of central importance in the New Testament. For one thing, the book of Acts is the only link between the Gospels, the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. It's the only link between the Gospels and the Epistles which the epistles are full-blown Christianity. You've got churches, you've got apostles and elders and deacons and evangelists. So if the book of Acts was missing, it would really be kind of awkward. You'd go from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and the next thing you'd see is some church in Rome. Jesus had never been to Rome. And so the book of Acts is this connective tissue in the New Testament. It's not only the historical link, but please hear me, it is the only experiential link between the Gospels and the Epistles. In other words, if you don't get anything else from tonight, please get this. You can't get into the church without having an Acts 2 experience like they did in the first century church. The book of Acts is in your Bible to teach you that. The new birth experience of repentance, baptism in the name of Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it was prophesied, but it wasn't available until Peter used the keys of the kingdom. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And he opened the door to salvation on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, specifically in his altar call at the end of his sermon, uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. You see, this had all been prophesied before, but it hadn't happened yet. One of the great theological errors of the modern church is that they try to teach a different salvation plan from the Gospels, from taking it out of the Gospels or taking it out of the epistles, and it's different from the book of Acts, and that's a major error. You see, the Gospels... They are beautiful and powerful, and they show us how God provided salvation. But please hear me. The Gospels precede the New Testament church. They come before. So the new birth experience of repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it was prophesied, but it wasn't available yet until the book of Acts, specifically chapter 2. And you can see this easily in the Gospels if you take a look. Jesus said, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Oh my, we love that verse. And we should, because the Bible says in the next verse, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. So he was talking about the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Spirit, rivers of living water flowing out of your life. Jesus prophesied that. But watch, it says, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet 
glorified. So Jesus paid for it. Jesus provided for it. Jesus prophesied. He told his disciples to go wait for it. Jesus made the Holy Ghost available because he could. The Holy Ghost is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's his spirit. However, the gospels precede the book of Acts. So that's you, you, you don't get saved because of the, the messages, the teaching, the life of Jesus in the gospel. Somebody said to me one time, well, it's the life of Jesus that saves me. And I looked at them and said, no, it's not the life of Jesus that saves you. In fact, the life of Jesus condemns you. He lived a perfect life. You've lived an imperfect life. He lived a holy life. You've lived a sinful life. The life of Jesus doesn't save you. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that saves you. And that didn't happen till the end of the gospel story. And it leads us into the book of Acts. So everyone say, the gospels precede the book of Acts. Okay, so that's the gospels. Now, in the very same way, when you go to the other side of the book of Acts, the epistles, they presume the New Testament church and the book of Acts. Everyone say, the epistles presume the book of Acts. What do I mean by that? I mean that every epistle that was written in your Bible, no matter who it's addressed to, the Romans, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, whoever it was addressed to, those writers, Paul and Peter and Jude and James, all the rest, they presume that you've already had a book of Acts experience. They assume that you've already repented of your sins, been baptized in the name of Jesus and received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They are writing to apostolic people who have been through the book of Acts. And so they assume you've had a new birth experience. So here's why that's important. Because there's a major theological error that floats around in the 21st century. And it's been here for 100 years or more. Uh, each of the writers assume that you've had a new birth experience, uh, i.e. Acts chapter 2. Any statements they make about salvation are referring from the epistles back to Acts chapter 2, back to the book of Acts, back to the New Testament church. They are writing not to the general public. They are writing not to sinners. They are writing to people who are already saved. So this, this leads to some confusion sometimes because in the epistles you'll see statements like this. Or, or even in the end of the book of Acts, long after Acts 2, decades later, you'll see statements like this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in Acts 16. You'll see, by grace are you saved, Ephesians 2. You'll see, you are justified by faith, Romans 5. You'll see, confess with your mouth, Romans 10. Those statements are absolutely true. They are core doctrinal statements. They are biblical concepts. However, while they are true... They are incomplete without the baseline of the book of Acts. Because when the writer said, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, they're assuming, they're writing to people that did exactly that. How did they confess with their mouth? How did they believe in their heart? How were they saved by faith or saved by grace? How were they justified? How did they do that? They went through the book of Acts experience and that's how all of that happened. So when they look back, they're presuming and they're assuming 
something that the readers, the listeners to those epistles when they were read in the church that they've been through the book of Acts. So just, just by review, everyone say the gospels precede the book of Acts. The epistles presume the book of Acts. And so the book of Acts is this very, very important book. And, and, and the epistles, here's one of the epistle writers saying, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. So Jesus started it, but it was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, the apostles. God also bearing them, the apostles, witness, both with signs and wonders, with divers, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So the writer of Hebrews in that epistle, uh, he says, how in the world would we escape God's wrath if we neglect this great salvation? Jesus prophesied it. Jesus paid for it. He left his apostles behind to preach it, and we've experienced it. How could we escape if we neglect it? Now, we're not going to take time tonight to go through the Acts 2.38 experience, although that is the most momentous moment in the book of Acts. Whether you're here tonight, whether you're part of our church family and you're watching online or anybody else watching online, we just finished a series just a few weeks ago, I think it was in the month of June, called 238, The Numbers of Help. It's totally on the new birth experience. And if you're watching online and you want to know more about that, that is the message, the core message of the book of Acts. And you can go back on our website and you can watch that and you can deep dive into Acts chapter 238. So we're not going to repeat that tonight, even though that is of critical importance. Instead, what I want to do in this series is spend some time on the structure of the book of Acts. And while Acts 2.38 is its core message, I believe there is also a core lesson in the book of Acts for the apostolic church. This book was written by Luke, same as the, the gospel of Luke. He was present for some of his events. When you're reading through the book of Acts, notice when Luke says we and notice when he says they. When he says they, he's not traveling with Paul. When he says we, he's there present for those events. And it's Luke who gathered the rest of the information. When he wasn't there, he got information from the apostle Paul. Both Luke's gospel and the book of Acts were addressed to a guy named Theophilus, Luke 1 and 3, Acts 1 and 1, Theophilus. Um, that literally means God lover. So we're not sure whether all Bible names had meaning. So we're not sure whether that was an actual name or whether he was addressing, given a compliment, you're a God lover. And, and by extension, these books are written to all of us who are God lovers. Some scholars believe that Theophilus was a converted Roman official who just happened to have been put in charge of administrating Paul's case when he went on trial before Caesar. He was kind of like a court-appointed attorney, but he was a Christian. And so Luke wrote these books to help him understand the ministry of Jesus and the role of Paul in the history of the church because Paul was on trial. Uh, he was going to die, and so they needed evidence for his trial. But regardless, this book begins with the ascension of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem 
And it ends very awkwardly and abruptly with Paul under house arrest in Rome and he's waiting for his trial before Caesar and it's Caesar Nero who hates Christians and morality and he's a despot and a madman. So of course Paul will end up being executed by Caesar Nero. Now the book of Acts is structured around a twofold promise the twofold promise of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And this is how the book of Acts is structured. Twofold promise and three expansions of evangelism. Twofold promise. Number one, you shall receive power. Everyone say power. And then the second part of the promise is you shall be witnesses. Everyone say witnesses. So the power is not so you can feel good or be blessed or have a nice little life. The power is so you can spread the gospel. You can be witnesses. Then that very same verse in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it also sets up three expansions of the New Testament church. You're going to preach in Jerusalem. That's the city it started in. That's chapter 1 through 7. You're going to preach in the, the provinces of Judea and Samaria. That's Acts 8 and 9. And then you're going to carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's Acts chapter 10 through 28. It's most of the book. And mostly the missionary journeys of, of Paul. And so Peter is the main character for roughly the first half of the book of Acts. Paul's the main character for the second half. And everything in the book is outlined in that one verse, a prophetic statement by Jesus. You will receive power, and when you do you will be witnesses. Now, it's all too easy, folks, and I think we know this instinctively as human beings and as individuals in the church. It's all too easy, isn't it, to miss the purpose or the plan of God if we're not focused on it. Isn't it so easy to get distracted by everyday life and all of our situations and all the pressures? And Do you, do you ever find that you go through a whole week and you come back to church and it's like you feel like, wow, I got to get plugged back in because this week kind of just distracted me from everything that's really important. Anybody ever feel like that? This is a safe space. You're okay to raise your hand. And, and, and that happens. It's so easy in any generation to miss the purpose or the plan of God and we want to avoid that. We want to be honed in on God's purpose and God's plan. So we need to be diligent not only to follow the message of the book of Acts. I think we've got that nailed down pretty good. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. Repent and be baptized and you'll receive the Holy Ghost. I think we've got the message of the book of Acts nailed down. But I do sometimes get concerned about us that we don't have the lesson of the book of Acts nailed down quite as well. And the lesson of the book of Acts is so very important. And so many people that read the book of Acts and even study the book of Acts, they, they miss this. The book of Acts is more than a doctrine book. It's more than a history book. It is a blueprint to help us build an apostolic church. So we can learn from their successes. We can learn from their dedication. But we can also learn from their failures. We can learn from their mistakes and not repeat them. And so that's kind of uh, what this book is all about. There's a message of the book of Acts. That's Acts 2.38. But there's a lesson in the middle of the book of Acts that we cannot miss in our generation. The book of Acts starts, of course, in the city of Jerusalem. 
And the church was promised power in Acts 1 and 8. And the Holy Ghost was given to empower that evangelistic effort and to take the gospel. And and, and Jesus said, you're going to impact your city first. That's Jerusalem. Then you're going to take this message to your region, Judea. You're going to work cross-culturally. That's Samaria. It's not the will of God that we have a monolithic, monocultural church. That is not the will of God. That is has never been the will of God. Uh, it's always been the will of God to have a multi-ethnic and multicultural and multi-generational church. It's always been his will and we can't miss that. And then ultimately Jesus said, you're going to take this to the uttermost parts of the earth. You're going to have a global influence. But, but here's the thing. The narrative contained in the book of Acts between Acts 1 verse 8 And Acts 6 verse 7 covers five years. Somebody say five years. And during that time in Jerusalem, they were having a time. They were blessed with miracles. They had divine visitation. There there was holy boldness to preach. And there was divine healing. There was all kinds of stuff. And they grew. They were persecuted. They were opposed. They even had some internal disputes. They had people drop dead in the church foyer. uh, All kinds of adventures. It was wonderful. Even the people dropping dead in the church foyer. That was wonderful in the book of Acts. Be careful out there. You could trip over something out there right now and drop dead, so please don't. But that all happened inside of Jerusalem. Their growth rate was very impressive. 3,000 people added in Acts 2.41, 5,000 men added to the church in Acts 4 and 4, multitudes of men and women added in Acts 5.14. And look at this verse, even a great company of the Jewish priests were added to the church in Acts 6 verse 7. But look at this, the word of God increased, the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So Jerusalem is having a time. Jerusalem is blessed. Jerusalem has miracles and healings and many souls. But Jerusalem is a tiny little dot on the map of the ancient world. It is one church in one city. And that's the problem with apostolic people. Sometimes we can get so focused on our little life and it's like Jesus is helping us with our problems and Jesus is soothing our anxiety and Jesus is healing our diseases and Jesus is doing all this and we don't even think of anybody else outside of our little circle or the four walls of where we worship and that almost derailed the New Testament church in the first century and my goodness, we've got way more people on this planet than they had to deal with and if there ever was a generation where we don't need to be focused on just what happens here and just what happens with us and just what happens on Sunday and just what happens in Fredericton if there ever was a generation where we need to have a global vision an uttermost part of the earth vision it would be our generation so we need to look back and learn from what they did and what they didn't do And so this is Jerusalem. But God had told them, you're going to do more than just Jerusalem. 
You're supposed to go to the province of Judea. You're supposed to go to the region of Samaria. You're supposed to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here's the problem. It is five years. Everyone say five years. It's five years after the day of Pentecost right now in Acts 6 verse 7 and nobody has budged out of their comfort zone to go do anything about what Jesus commanded them to do. And so God, who runs the universe, he stepped in and it wasn't pretty for a while. That five-year honeymoon was absolutely shattered with the martyrdom of Stephen. He was one of the young deacons from Acts chapter 6. And when he was killed under intense persecution led by Saul of Tarsus, suddenly disciples were just scattered to the four winds. They had to go everywhere. Things were getting so bad in Jerusalem. But as things got worse in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem church, things started to happen in Judea. And wonderful things started to happen in Samaria. So in one swift act of persecution, God forced obedience on his church and he compelled them to mobilize. Stephen's death resulted in more obedience to the Great Commission than any single event in the history of the church up until that point. Stephen's death, his martyrdom, a brutal massacre of a fine anointed young man stoned to death by a brutal angry mob. That murder was even a factor in the conversion of the great apostle Paul. So in one swift act of persecution, you know how we pray. I know how I pray. Oh, God, protect me from that, and God, bless me over here, and God, don't let any evil come, and don't let anything bad happen. But do you know sometimes when we get cold or callous or unconcerned or a little bit carnal, sometimes God allows bad things in our life, number one, to make us pray, and number two, to make us obey. And it's not always a bad thing. Here's the scripture. Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death. And at that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who stayed back in Jerusalem to try to cobble together some kind of leadership structure for this church that was being scattered all over the place. And here's the message as it begins in the book of Acts. The, the, the message is Acts 2.38, but here's the lesson. We're six chapters in and we start to see it, that God loves lost people so much that he will allow anything to happen to his church to mobilize us to reach lost people. I say it very strongly tonight that if God's got your nest all disturbed and if God's got your comfort zone all messed up and if, if something's going on in your life that you don't like, it might be a good thing to take a look inward and say, how involved am I in doing the will of God in my life? You know, there are people, they, they, they've got a prayer request list and, uh, as long as their arm for the church to pray about. But, but they don't even make much of an effort. The rest of the time, it's like, you know, and, and if you request a prayer today, I'm so sorry I didn't read it. So I'm not talking about you. So you can get offended now, pray through, repent, and still be saved if you do it real quick. You know, you know 
church, please pray for this. And pastor, please, please pray for this. And Jesus, please touch this. And church, would you please intercede for this? And it's like, and when did we see you last? You just send prayer requests in by like carrier pigeon now? Do you ever come pray for anybody else? Do you ever pray for anybody else's prayer request? Do, do you ever join together with the church when we go for, go for it and we're praying for missionaries and we're, we're pushing and we're, we're striving and we're praying over Afghanistan and we've been praying over Haiti and we've been praying over missionaries that are, are in times of upheaval. Have, have you been part of that? Or is everything in your life just about your comfort zone? Because that's the error that they almost made in the first century. And here's what they started to learn. God loves lost people so much that he's not committed to great churches. He's committed to the great commission. And if great churches, no matter how great they are, if they won't get involved in the great commission, God has other plans and he'll move on. See, if we won't go, if we won't get involved, God has two options. And the first one is persecution, to knock us out of our comfort zone. He'll stir us up. He'll, he'll make us sweat. He, he will allow things to come in to make our lives a little uncomfortable, maybe even miserable. And he's trying to say in that still small voice, what are you doing for my kingdom? Because my kingdom is the only thing that's going to last. Your kingdom isn't going to last. Your comfort isn't going to last. Your houses and property and cars and jobs and careers and retirement plans, they're not going to last for eternity. But my kingdom is going to last for eternity so he'll shake us up if he needs to and sometimes we see that everyone say persecution but if persecution doesn't do it God has a horrible second option it's far worse and it's far more scary his second option option is substitution that he'll anoint somebody else to go do what we won't do He'll touch somebody else and he'll use them to do some great thing for his kingdom because the people that had truth, the people that had anointing, the people that had power, the people that had legacy, the people that had heritage, the people that had pedigree, they weren't that concerned. Can I just tell you, I don't want God to ever look at CCC and say, I can't use them. They're too tied up in themselves. I'm going to have to lift my hand and put it over here. I never want God to do that. I don't want God to ever do that to my life. I don't want God to ever say, Raymond's so stubborn and self-focused and obtuse. I've just got to lift my hand off of him and I've got to go find somebody that's willing, somebody that's concerned, somebody that cares. God help us to be about our father's business as we live our everyday lives. And so now the narrative moves to another place. It moves to the province of Judea and Samaria because they've been pushed out of Jerusalem. And, and so now they're finally beginning to do the great commission that God asked them to do. And Philip, one of those young deacons, a buddy of Stephen who'd just been brutally murdered, he ends up in Samaria because he was chased out of Jerusalem. And he doesn't know anything else to do. He's a fine young man. He just starts preaching. He's not even one of the apostles. He's not one of the leaders, but he's moved outside of his box and God starts to use him. And the Bible just tells us the story. 
Philip went down to the city of Samaria. He just preached Christ to them. He didn't do anything flamboyant or phenomenal. He just shared his testimony. He shared the gospel. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. God used this young man. And the apostles back in Jerusalem, it's kind of comical here. They're scrambling to try to keep up because, you know, whatever they had for a headquarters, it's demolished. And whatever structure they had, it's all scattered to the four winds. And now they're hearing that God is sending revival in Samaria. They hadn't been concerned about Samaria yet before the uh, martyrdom of Stephen. But now God's moved outside of the box and he's giving revival that can't be managed, it can't be organized, it can't be controlled, it, it can't be, you know, you can't put a lid on it. He's given that kind of revival. Revival's always messy. Revival's always inconvenient. Revival can feel like a distraction because there's so much to do with so many people that are all new in their faith at the same time. But God Bring it on at CCC. Whatever we have to do, whatever we have to commit, whatever time we have to give, God bring it on because we didn't build this building and then renovate it so we could have something new to look at. We are preparing for babies to be born into the kingdom of God. We are preparing for a revival and a harvest in our city. We're preparing to shove over a little bit and make a little bit of room. We're preparing to teach some Bible studies and pray in the altars and we're we're preparing for new people to come. God help us if we're not. And so the apostles are playing catch up because God just blew their mind. Up to now, it's been the 12 apostles, the 12 apostles, the 12 apostles, and now it's that kid named Philip. And so when the apostles, which are at Jerusalem, when they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they said, we better get some elders down there to see if this is okay. And they sent Peter and John. And it's kind of funny. Because they're playing catch up. They weren't doing what God had called them to do. And so God just moved out beyond them to force them to catch up with him. And so uh, it, it proceeds on. Because while God's doing that, behind the scenes, he's working on a guy they would never expect. And you would never expect. The terrorist that martyrs Stephen, the terrorist that's been arresting Christians and threatening them with death and forcing them to recant their faith and throwing them in jail. And he's got all kinds of power and clout and connections. And he's got the permission of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to persecute this church and push it underground. His name's Saul of Tarsus. And while the church is all focused over here trying to figure out what to do with Samaria, behind the scenes, God is working on the heart of the most unlikely man to get saved in the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus. And God is touching his heart and God is convicting him and then God literally knocks him off his high horse on the road to Damascus and Saul of Tarsus ends up being converted, baptized in the name of Jesus, filled with the Holy Ghost. The Lord even conscripts Ananias and Barnabas to make sure that Saul is brought to the church in Jerusalem. And so they bring this guy this guy that killed Uncle Fred and this guy that killed Aunt Sophie and this guy that killed Stephen and this guy, that he's a terrorist. The church is scared to death of him. And here comes Barnabas and Ananias dragging this culprit into the church in Jerusalem saying, 
hey, guess what? Saul got saved. You know what they did? They said, no, he didn't. We don't believe it. And they sent Saul of Tarsus back home until they could figure out what they wanted to do with him. They shut the door in the face of what is undoubtedly the greatest conversion in the New Testament. But when the Jerusalem church heard about it and they saw Saul of Tarsus face to face, they weren't impressed, they slammed the door. God help us to raise our vision and raise our sights and realize that God can save anybody and bring them into his church. You say, I don't like how they live. I don't like their politics. I don't like their immorality. I don't like their vicious attacks against godly people. You might not. But if God ever gets a hold of their heart, they might be the biggest, best thing that ever happened to the church in the city of Fredericton or the nation of Canada. So don't you lower your sights and shut your heart off. You be ready for God to do unprecedented things, especially in the last days because we got a bigger job to do in the 21st century than they had to do with their population in the first century. And it's pathetic what happens at this point. When Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed, he tried, he begged, he pleaded to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and they believed not that he was a disciple. They refused. God is literally trying to push them into the next phase of revival and they've got their arms folded and they are not having any of it. And that's in your Bible to let us know that we cannot afford to do the same thing in our generation. And you know what's worst? Everyone say 10. It is now 10 years after the day of Pentecost and the clock is ticking down and nobody has hardly budged to reach the Gentiles, the, the biggest population group in the world of that day. Nobody's reached a Gentile yet. They're so focused on the Jewish church and their Jewish culture and their Jewish friends. Do you know it's an awful tendency that we want to pray for our own? We can spend our whole lives just praying for our family members and our friends and never raise our sights to pray for anything else. A nation collapsed this week. People are so terrified. A brutal Islamic regime has taken over Afghanistan. It collapsed. Women are already disappearing from the streets. You saw the scenes this week. People trying to hold on to the sides of U.S. military planes. They're so desperate to get out from under that hateful, brutal regime. You say, I don't know what to pray for. Oh, my goodness. Really? You don't know what to pray for. And our world is coming apart at the seams. If we could lift up our eyes. You know, I've told people with backslidden kids before, and I'm not heartless, and I'm grateful that our kids are serving the Lord, and I want all your kids to serve God and be saved. But I have told many people with backslidden kids, you know the best thing you can do for your backslidden kids? 
is make sure you're invested in your local church and that we're having revival and that we're reaching other people's kids and that when they get back and when they get that revelation and when God tweaks their heart and touches their life, there's a revival church with a move of the Spirit for them to walk back into. Don't be so focused on just you and yours that you don't help us to have a revival that will result in a whole bunch of people's kids being saved. That's the best chance for your kids, for your spouse, for your family to serve Jesus if we've got a church that loves Jesus and loves everybody and we're praying for revival for whosoever will, not just us and our own. I'm not trying to be confrontational or even controversial tonight, but this is in your Bible. See, it's not that the Jerusalem church said, no, we won't. They didn't reject the Great Commission outright. It's that they were so tied up in themselves, reaching people that were just like them. It is a, a pathetic thing in the church world that, that we almost get an attitude like, oh, they would make a wonderful Christian. They would be such a good Pentecostal, wouldn't they? And you know who you're pointing at? Somebody that's exactly like you. They eat at your favorite restaurant. They like your political party. They live in your neighborhood maybe. You go to work with them. They're like you. That's why you think they'd make a good Pentecostal. You have no idea if they'd make a good Pentecostal or not. I hope they do. But you know what? God can reach the down and outer or the up and outer. He can reach the immoral and the ungodly. He can reach people that hate you and your convictions and your church and your Bible and your God and he can get in the middle of their heart and blow it up with his presence and his power and they could make the best Pentecostal believer you've ever seen and they're not even on your radar. So this whole episode is in the scripture in the book of Acts to raise our sights. God used persecution first but they continued to resist. It's 10 years after the day of Pentecost. Nobody's even taught a Bible study to a Gentile yet. And now the narrative in the book of Acts moves to Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a decade after Pentecost and the church is still struggling to get out of their comfort zone. And God steps in again. And he sends two people visions. God sends a vision to the apostle Peter and God sends a vision to a pagan Roman general named Cornelius. And guess who was easier to convince? It was the pagan Roman general named Cornelius. God had to send Peter three visions to get him to finally listen. And so eventually Peter is overcome or he relents or he submits or whatever. And so Peter heads off with some of the servants of Cornelius and some bodyguards. That's in your Bible. He didn't want any trouble. And so there's three servants of Cornelius. I think that's why God sent him three visions saying, what I have cleansed, don't you call common and unclean. What I'm working in, you leave your hands and your tongue off of that. You just let me work. You just let me go to work. And you don't have to criticize it, even if you don't understand it. You just let God be God and let him work on whoever he wants to work on. And you just keep preaching and you just keep being a witness. So, so God sends Peter three visions. And he tells him, what, I'm, what I've cleansed, don't you call common and unclean. Cornelius has seen a vision of, from God. And so he sent three servants to go find the Pentecostal preacher that preached the revival meeting, the camp meeting on the day of Pentecost. Only he doesn't want to take this preaching engagement. 
And so these three servants show up. So Peter takes six of his friends and goes to the household of Cornelius because two to one, they can overpower these pagan Gentiles that they don't trust if there's any trouble. And it's an amazing chapter. This is Acts chapter 10. I've said it before in this poll, but I thank God for Acts chapter 2. But I thank God for Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 2 got the Jews in the church. But they weren't that concerned about the rest of us. If it had been up to that Jerusalem Jewish church in the first century, there wouldn't have ever been a Canadian in the apostolic church. But thank God Acts chapter 10 is in the book of Acts because here's what happened. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. But even though he's a Roman and even though he's a pagan and he kneels down to pagan gods and idols, he's a devout man and he fears God with all his house And he did many good deeds. He gave much alms to the people. And he prayed always. He didn't know how to pray. He didn't know anything about the tabernacle or Melchizedek or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or Moses. He didn't know any of that. He was a pagan. But in whatever way he could, he reached out to God every day. And I believe, you cannot convince me otherwise, that there are hundreds of people in our little city that every day they don't know anything about church they don't know anything about you sweet people they don't know anything about the book of Acts many of them don't know anything about a Bible they've never cracked a cover there are a few people you don't believe this see but there are we've encountered them there are people in our city that don't know anything about Jesus you say oh that's not in Fredericton you've lived in Fredericton too long Fredericton is different than it was when you grew up here Fredericton has opened its doors to the world. We've got immigrants from all over and many of them come from cultures where Jesus, if he's anything, is just a prophet that died many, many hundreds of years ago. But they pray and they're hungry and they don't know what they're hungry for and they don't know what they're looking for, but that's where you and I come in. That's where a church like this comes in. It's our job. It's God's great commission for us to pray and be a witness and do something about it. So Peter finally goes to the household of Cornelius and he walks in the door and he says, when he gets to Cornelius' house, suddenly he gets it. It's only taken the preacher 10 years to get this. But he says, of a truth, suddenly I got it. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that fears God and works righteousness will be accepted with him. And Peter starts to share the gospel, just an elementary little gospel message because folks, you don't have to be a theologian to share the gospel. You don't have to have a degree in doctrine to tell somebody how much Jesus means to you and how much Jesus has done for you. You don't need any of that. Can I say it? It's better if you don't have it. You don't come across like some talking head of religion. You come across as a real person who had a real experience with a real God. So just be yourself and share Jesus with them. And while Peter was doing that simple little gospel message, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. That's the first time any people like you and me ever got in the apostolic church. That's the first moment any people like you and me, Gentiles, we weren't in the Old Testament covenant. We didn't have any rights to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. We didn't have any of that. We didn't have tabernacle and temple and priesthood and sacrifice. 
We were pagans. We were Gentiles. We were outside of God's covenant. But because of Acts chapter 10, God stepped over the fence. He stepped over the boundaries and he said it's about time there were some dirty, rotten, pagan, sinner Gentiles in my church. And if you won't do it, I'm going to send visions. I'm going to arrange your steps. I'm going to make Peter go and I'm going to make him preach. And all of a sudden, Peter is overwhelmed by the goodness of God and he said, I get it. I perceive it. God doesn't love me any better than he loves them. I just got this first. And CCC, God doesn't love you any better than he loves any sinner in this city. You just got it first. So if you got it first, it's your responsibility to pass it on. This is in your Bible for a reason. It's hard to imagine after a day like that and a service like that and the Holy Ghost being poured out like that and the people, well, you got to read this though. And they of the circumcision, everyone say the Jews, which believe were astonished. So these are Christian Jews. These are apostolic believers, but they have a handicap. They're from Jerusalem. They were astonished as many as came with Peter. And here's why they're astonished. Because on those dirty, rotten Gentiles was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. I thought that was only for people like us. I thought that was only for people that shared our morality and our sensibilities and our political stripe. And I, they, they were like us. I thought it was only for them. No, God just kicked the traces and kicked down the fence and jumped over the boundaries and filled some Gentiles with the Holy Ghost. And sitting 2,000 years later looking back at that, aren't you glad God loved us enough to knock down a fence and go out beyond the Jewish covenant and welcome us into his church? If he would do that for us, the least we could do for the rest of the world is be willing to do the same thing and to knock down a few fences and to reach over a few boundaries and to go beyond a few borders and get out of our comfort zone and welcome them into the church the same as we were welcomed into the church. Hard to imagine, isn't it, that anybody would have a problem with the church growing. <laughs> you came far too late to tell this pastor that everybody loves it when the church grows. There are people that absolutely hate it. Oh my goodness, we've had people over the years say, I've got to leave, I, I need to go to a little small church where everybody knows my name and the pastor comes for tea every week. I just need a little small church. There's nothing wrong with a small church. Every church starts small. But every church is supposed to grow. So churches shouldn't pride themselves on staying small and we know everybody. If you walk in here and you think, man, I don't know half of these people. Good! That's how it's supposed to work. Furthermore, if you don't know them, stand up, walk over, and say, I'm Raymond. It's easy. Oh, no, you're all looking at me like, it's the cross I have to bear. No, it's just being human, friendly, outgoing, kind, personable, normal. It's actually quite easy. It's hard to imagine that some people would have trouble with the church growing and God using people like Peter and Paul to bring souls into his kingdom, but, but there are people that have trouble. And, and, and here's the very next chapter in your Bible, Acts eleven seventeen. 17. They give Peter grief. 
They say, who do you think you are to go to a Gentile household and preach the gospel? And What are you saying that they got the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues and, and you told them to get baptized in Jesus' name? What is wrong with your head? And here's what Peter said. For as much then as God gave them the like gift, the same gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? If God wanted to fill him with the Holy Ghost, what am I supposed to do? Stand there, wave a stop sign? If God wants to fill him with the Holy Ghost, you know what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be cheering. That's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be worshiping. That's what I'm going to be doing. Peter said, who was I? What was I that I could withstand God? You know, it's ironic today, brothers and sisters, that today there are actually Christian groups who don't believe, and worse, who actually attack the experience of speaking in other tongues. It would be the equivalent of having a non-electrified city in the 21st century. You can't imagine a city without power. Your power goes out for a couple of hours and you're freaking out. You can't check Facebook. But if you had a non-electrified city, no electricity in a, in a modern city, it would be about the same as imagining a church not empowered by the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's ironic today that there are so-called Christian groups that actually teach against speaking in tongues when there wouldn't be any Gentile Christians if it hadn't been for speaking in tongues. The only reason the first century Jews allowed us in their church was because some Gentiles received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And the Bible specifically says in chapter 10, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That's why we got in this in the first place. Can I tell you, I'm not trying to be offensive, and I know we're online, so forgive me, but there wouldn't be a Pentecostal church, a Baptist church, an Anglican church, a United church, a Catholic church. There wouldn't be any Gentile churches if it had not been for speaking in other tongues. So don't you hang your head because you're a tongue talker. That's the whole reason that the Gentiles were allowed in the church in the beginning. I need to move on. So this happens next. Jerusalem's trying to control everything God's doing. And so God just picked up his revival and moved it beyond their control. And remember, the church is being scattered. So here it goes. Now they that were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, they traveled as far as Phenis and Cyprus and Antioch. This is so stupid. And they preached the word to none but under the Jews only. They found this little tiny synagogue in a corner of a city and they only preached, they only shared the gospel with people that shared their culture and their likes and their dislikes and their music preferences. And they, they were just locked into this little cultural jail. And so they're in Antioch. Antioch is a predominantly Gentile city. It's inconceivable that you would go to Antioch and preach to Jews when it's 99.9% .9 Gentile, but that's what they did. They assumed that Jewish people, people just like them, were the only people God wanted to save. They believed God only wanted to save people that identified with their religious culture. But thank God there was a second group that went to Antioch. Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, they spake unto the Grecians and they preached the Lord Jesus. 
and the hand of the Lord was not with the first group. It was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Thank God for that second group. And that was a moment of destiny, brothers and sisters. This is when the church in Antioch is born. This is when they reach beyond their little cultural preferences and they finally get involved in great commission business. And they finally get involved in building God's kingdom and not their own. And just shortly after that, the apostolics become known as they who have turned the world upside down. If it had not been for Acts chapter 10 and for Peter pushing through in Acts chapter 11, if it had not been for that group that went to Antioch, we would not be in the church. I'm so glad to be in the church, so I'm so appreciative that somebody in the first century got out of their comfort zone and God help us in our century, in our generation, in our culture to get out of our comfort zone. Jerusalem never knew how to deal with people like the Apostle Paul. He ignored protocol, he broke tradition, and they sent him back to Tarsus to cool his jets because they just didn't like him. And that is why, brothers and sisters, that the church in Jerusalem, who had the right doctrine, who had the right experience, who had the heritage and the legacy, and there where the Holy Ghost first fell, that's why the church in Jerusalem never got to send out history's greatest missionary. That honor fell to Antioch. Look at this. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus to seek Saul. He'd been pushed to the background for three and a half years. They didn't want to hear from him. And when he finally found him, he did not take him back to Jerusalem to be rejected again. He brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and they taught much people. Here it is in your Bible. Shouldn't be here, but it is. Should have been Jerusalem, but it's not. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Why? Because Antioch was a church with a missionary heartbeat. Antioch was a church that was concerned about people that were not just like them. People are still fighting about it even after that. 20 years. Everyone say 20 years. It's 20 years after the day of Pentecost and they're still fighting and the Bible tells us this horrid story in Acts 15 that a bunch of people started arguing and said basically you've got to be circumcised uh, like it says in the law of Moses. You've got to become Jewish to become Christian and it's this big long deal. So they have this conference and they get together and, and there are speakers and they try to argue it out. The fact that 20 years after the day of Pentecost, they're still fighting about who can belong to their church, that is pathetic, that is awful, that is not of God. And it almost derailed the church in the first century. Do you understand that that sometimes still happens in the 21st century? That people actually give a cold shoulder to to somebody that's making their way to God and they're not welcoming them? You were on the apostolic welcome welcoming committee for Capital Community Church. Everybody in this city is welcome inside these doors. There are no exceptions. There's nobody excluded. Everybody's included. I don't care what they did. I don't care what jail sentence they served. I don't care who they messed up or who they messed around with. It doesn't matter. Everybody is welcome in these doors because if God opened the doors wide enough for us, we've got to open the doors wide enough for some other people. 
It's not your job to police who comes to God. It's not your job to police who's allowed to be a member of the church. Instead, it's our job to say, whosoever will may come. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. It's just crazy, and I need to probably skip this, but I'll just rattle through it. Peter gets up in this meeting, and he said, Why would you tempt God and put a yoke on the neck of these Gentile disciples? Neither we nor our fathers were able to bear it. You're trying to enforce all kinds of rules on people. They're not even saved yet, and you've already hit them with the dress code. You've already hit them with the music choices. You've already hit them with your personal preferences. Would you leave that to Jesus and and his sweet Holy Ghost and just let people grow in the Lord. And then Barnabas and Paul get up and, and, and they give audience to them and they just say, all we can say is God's doing miracles and wonders among the Gentiles. God's working out there. You got your eyes so focused on in here, you're not looking at what God's doing out there. Do you realize that most of the baptisms that pastor has had in the last few weeks, they haven't been during a service. God's working throughout the week. He's working on people that they weren't even hardly here yet, but God was working on them. Can you lift up your eyes beyond our newly renovated sanctuary and our disastrous in-construction foyer? Could you lift up your eyes beyond our little parking lot? And could you understand that while you're sitting here on a Wednesday, Wednesday night, Jesus is alive and well and at work. And he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. He's working in Fredericton. He's working in New Brunswick. He's working in Canada. But he's looking for a people like us to work with him. And James gets up at the end of the conference and we'll move on and I'll conclude. James gets up at the end and he says, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. There are some necessary things. The world is perverted. The world is sinful. So yeah, we're going to stand for righteousness. We're going to tell people what the Bible says about how to live because we're compelled to do that. It's in the scripture. Sin divides them from God. So yeah, we're going to teach about morality and godliness. But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to add to that a whole bunch of our personal Pentecostal preferences and stack that on top of what the Bible says. Everybody doesn't have to favor your politician. <laughs> oh, I can say this because we're not American, at least not most of us. I don't care if you thought Donald Trump was the Messiah or the Antichrist. You're welcome here. I may think your opinion's crazy one way or the other, and you don't know which way I think on that one, so. But you're welcome here. I don't care what kind of music you like. I don't care if you like what the young people did on the weekend or you like what we did here tonight or you don't like any of it. You're welcome here. Because our job is to welcome people, not to vet people. Oh, I'm a, I got, Pastor, I could say it again, but I need to move on or I'll get in trouble. Everyone say 40. 20 years after the day of Pentecost, they were still fighting over who was allowed in the church in Jerusalem. 
20 years after Pentecost, they're still arguing. I don't think we should let them in. I don't think they're worthy. I don't think they'd fit. I don't think they'd make a good Pentecostal. They need to convert to be a Jew like us before we'll let them be saved. 20 years after Pentecost, they were still arguing about that in Jerusalem. So 40 years after Pentecost, there was no Jerusalem church. God let Jerusalem be demolished by the Romans. And there was no Jerusalem church. But Antioch was still going strong and having revival and reaching their world. There's the message of the book of Acts, brothers and sisters. That's Acts 2.38. We don't waver on that. We can't. It's Bible. But there's also the lesson of the book of Acts. And the lesson of the book of Acts is that there are two New Testament church models. There's Jerusalem that failed, and there's Antioch that succeeded. And you've got to be one or the other. You don't get middle ground. The Jerusalem church was full of critics and controllers and traditionalists. But the Antioch church was full of risk takers and radical revivalists. And they seized their moment in history. And God help us to seize ours. Somebody come back and play something soothing on the keyboard. Because the church in Antioch sent Paul out on his missionary journeys, he eventually ended up in a city called Ephesus, which is the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a wealthy, sophisticated city, many religions, but it was there that Paul planted a church that became very influential. And he continued there by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in the Roman province of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Here's the bottom line. Because there was a great commission, missionary-hearted church in Antioch, there was eventually an apostolic great commission, missionary-hearted church in Ephesus. And because there was an apostolic missionary-hearted great commission church in Ephesus, eventually the whole Roman province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And it all reaches back to one church that said, we're going to reach for everybody and anybody. Jerusalem had the right doctrine, but Antioch had the right doctrine and the right passion. And that's why history, secular history, refers to Antioch, not Jerusalem, as the cradle of Christianity. So just one question remains for us in the 21st century. Are we going to be a Jerusalem church or are we going to be an Antioch church? It's the only question. It is the question of the book of Acts. You say, but the world's so big and it's such a mess and there's so much against us and, and we don't have the resources and we don't have the numbers and we don't have... Remember your brothers and sisters in the first century. The book of Acts carries on. This isn't the end. Thank God it's not the end. The apostle Paul... He's arrested in Jerusalem. He's tried before the Sanhedrin. He's taken to Caesarea. He's tried before Felix. He's in prison for two years. He's tried before Festus and his advisor, King Agrippa. And then Paul appeals to Caesar. He said, I'm a Roman citizen. I want to go to Rome for trial. He knows full well he'll probably die there. But he wants to go preach the gospel in Rome. He wrote a letter to the Roman church before he'd ever seen their faces. It's a beautiful book of the Bible. 
He's shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta while he's going there for three months. And then the book of Acts ends. I told you earlier, it ends abruptly. It ends awkwardly. They think that Luke was probably writing evidence to be used for Paul's trial to hopefully get him off on a technicality. But there was very little chance with that despotic madman, Emperor Nero, in charge. The book of Acts ends so awkwardly. Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house. He's under house arrest. He received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. We've studied this before. The book of Acts ends with four words in English. It ends with one word in the Greek language, and the word is akalutos. In the Greek language, all of the weight of the last two verses of the book of Acts comes crashing down on one word, and Luke stops writing, and the word is akalutos. In English, it's four words, no man forbidding him, but in the Greek language, it is unhindered, unpreventable, unstoppable. So here's the great apostle who can't preach any crusades anymore. He can't even leave this place where he's under house arrest. He can only see a few people at a time. History tells us they kept changing his guards because he kept converting them. He is confined as confined as a preacher can be. And yet when Luke writes the final word on the book of Acts, and it looks like a defeat, no more big crusades, no more big street meetings. The Roman Empire has come in and they've arrested the great apostle, the pen of the first century. He's no more. And yet Luke stops the book of Acts on a dime and says, and Paul, under arrest, not allowed to travel, not allowed to go anywhere, not allowed to preach to crowds, not allowed to go to any other cities, Paul was unstoppable. That's Luke's last word on the apostolic church. In spite of all the obstacles they faced, in spite of all the struggles they'd been through, in spite of all the mistakes they made, Luke's final word on the apostolic church was, and the church was, and Paul was unstoppable. Can I tell you, in the 21st century, with governments that are so massive and so arrayed against godliness and morality, can I tell you the word of God, the last word on the church, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last word on apostolic believers, the last word from God is, and the church was, and the church is, and you are unstoppable. So it's never been more important for us to dive in head first with both feet and just say, God, whatever you're doing in this season, don't do it without me. Whatever you're doing in your church right now, I want in. Whatever you want me to do, I'm here, God. It's it's never been more important. I am finished. It is time to stand up and lift up your hands and say, Jesus, I really do want what Pastor Raymond was talking about tonight. I really do want to be involved in the last days of your church. I really do want my life to count for your kingdom. I really do want to be a witness. I really do want to help somebody get welcomed into the apostolic faith the way my family was welcomed into the apostolic faith and if there's anybody like that I want you to lift up your voice like an intercessory cry I want you to lift up your voice like a prophetic 
vendetta against the devil and just say, devil, you may have pushed back. You may have tried to interfere. You may have tried to knock us out with coronavirus and pandemic restrictions, but devil, you can't stop us. The church is unstoppable. You keep us from meeting, we'll go at it one and one. But as long as we have this freedom, as long as we have this privilege, we're going to work together to grow God's church. Oh my.